succulents growing in her hair. She could squat and piss wine off her balcony on vine, and her famous neighbors didn't seem to care. If you slow her bites, we'll turn you to the undead. She'll eat your skin and guts like a hog. to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 139 when we go back, back to the, to the past. past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.com and subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and from a faint crackling single emanating from the darkest part of Space Sector 666. Uh, this show is part of the hashtag JLMA series of podcasts. Stay tuned at the end of the show for a list of who to listen to for the rest of the story. Uh, or check the show notes if you can't wait that long. But what issue? Well, let's stop keeping them in suspense here, Chris. What issue are we reading today? We're taking a look at Blackest Night number one, uh, cover date September 2009, published, of course, by DC Comics. Written by Jeff Johns, pencils Ivan Reese, inked by Eau Claire Albert, uh, colored by Alex Sinclair, letters by Nick Napolitano, covered by the same folks. Uh, variant cover, Ethan Van Sciver with Hi-Fi. Uh, it's got an assistant editor. His name is Adam Schlagman. Editor, Eddie Berganza. Executive editor, Dan DiDio. This one came with a $3.99 USD cover price. Wow, it seems just like it could have come out yesterday, right? <laughs> Some of those uh, names and the price attached to it. True. We're going to start over, as we usually do, with the writer. Uh, Jeff Johns was born January 25th, 1973, in Detroit, Michigan. As a child, Johns and his brother first discovered comics through an old box of them that they found in their grandmother's attic, which included copies of The Flash, Superman, Green Lantern, and Batman from the 1960s and 1970s. Johns eventually began to patronize a comic shop in, Tra- in Traverse City, uh, that's in northern Michigan, recalling that the first new comics he bought were Crisis on Infinite Earths 3 or 4, that would have been June or July 1985 cover date, and The Flash number 348 or 349, that's August or September 1985 cover date. Uh, incidentally, if it was The Flash number 348, he got the issue that was the conclusion to a trial that lasted three or more years, right? Something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, a long time. So that would have been a funny one to kind of walk into, but all right. Uh, over time, Jeff Johns gravitated more to the DC line and later its Vertigo imprint, as many letters pages from 1980s DC comics can attest to. After graduating from Clarkston High School in 1991, John studied media, arts, screenwriting, film production, and film theory at Michigan State University, graduating in 1995. And then he set his sights on Los Angeles, California. While there, he cold-called the office of director Richard Donner. He's best known for directing The Omen in 1976 and Superman 1978. That's, of course, the one that stars Christopher Reeve. Now, Johns was looking for an internship, and while being transferred all over the place, Donner accidentally picked up the phone, led to them speaking, and uh, subsequently, Johns getting that internship. Now, he started off copying scripts, and after about two months, he was hired as a production assistant for Donner. 
Now, while working on production of Donner's uh, 1997 film Conspiracy Theory, he would meet Eddie Berganza, and he invited him to visit DC Comics offices. This would lead to John's pitching Stars and Stripe. Now, this is a series based on the second Star-Spangled Kid and her stepfather. Now, John's expected to write comics on the side until he met David Goyer and James Robinson, who were at that time writing JSA. After taking a look at Stars and Stripe, Robinson offered John's co-writing duties on JSA starting in 2000. John's credits both him and editor Mike Carlin with shepherding him into the comics industry. And that same year, Johns became the regular writer on the Flash ongoing series with number 164, September 2000, cover date, until 225, that's the October 2005 cover date. He co-wrote a Beast Boy limited series with Ben Robb in 2000 and crafted the Return to Krypton story arc in the Superman titles with Pasquale Ferry in 2002. After writing the Avengers Volume 3, number 57 to 76, that's October 2002 to February 2004 cover dates, and Avengers Icons, colon, The Vision 1 through 4, that's October 2002 to January 2003 cover dates for Marvel Comics, Johns oversaw the relaunch of Hawkman and Teen Titans, those are two different titles, not one title, uh, in 2005. That same year, Johns brought back Hal Jordan in the Green Lantern colon Rebirth miniseries drawn by Ethan Van Skyver and picked up writing duties on Green Lantern, Green Lantern thereafter for a long time. We're going to get into more detail later uh, about what Hal did within the Green Lantern mythology and what Jeff Johns wrote about it. Uh, which will set the stage for Blackest Night, but for the immediate purposes, we can say that Jeff Johns had an unbroken run on Green Lantern in whatever form it took at the time, as well as other related Green Lantern titles from 2005 until 2013. And he kept himself busy throughout that time doing other things. Oh, there were other things. We'll get. We'll, we'll talk about those too. Yeah, it wasn't just that either. So certainly. Uh, now, Johns was also the writer of the Infinite Crisis crossover limited series that ran from cover dates December 2005 through June 2006, and this is seen as a sequel to 1985's Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, following this, he was one of four writers, along with Mark Wade, Grant Morrison, and Greg Rucka, who worked on the weekly miniseries 52, which ran from 2006 to 2007. Also in 2006, he would team up with Kurt Busiek to uh, write Up, Up, and Away. This is a story arc in the Superman books, uh, Superman uh, Volume 1, uh, Adventures of Superman Turned Back into Just Plain Superman, mm-hmm. and uh, Action Comics. This was the one year later deal here, so we skipped mm-hmm. a year ahead, and we're just catching up with them there. Uh, he was then reunited with uh, his old mentor, Richard Donner, and they wrote the last Sun storyline together in Action Comics. Uh, the Justice Society of America series by Johns and Dale Eaglesham would begin in February 2007, and six months later, he and Jeff Katz would launch the second volume of Booster Gold. Now, 2009 was a very big year for Jeff Johns. He wrapped up the Sinestro Core War, which is a big Green Lantern crossover event about which we'll talk a little bit more soon. Uh, he had a run on Action Comics with Gary Frank, including the Brainiac storyline where Jonathan Kent, Clark, and Connor Kent's adoptive father is killed. Uh, together, they also revamped Superman's origin with the graphic novel Superman colon Secret Origin, which fairly well establishes the same thing, that John Kent is dead, as well as a few other incidental th- uh, aspects. John also de- John's also teamed with Ethan Van Skyver on the Flash colon Rebirth miniseries, which returned Barry Allen to the DC Universe, and he wrote the Blackest Night miniseries, which we'll be reading in a few minutes. 
In 2010, DC Comics writer and president uh, Paul Levitt said of Jeff, folding in old concepts and inventing new ones, Johns has established limitless story possibilities. On February 18, 2010, Johns was named the chief creative officer of DC Entertainment, which was established to expand the DC Comics brand across other media platforms. Uh, He said that this position would not impact his writing. Uh, Johns wrote the core books of the of the Brightest Day event, drawn by uh, co-written by Peter J. Tomasi. Uh, then he went immediately into the summer-long crisis-level event, Flashpoint. This is also 2011. Uh, this would lead to the New 52, where we could uh, wrap up his run on Green Lanterns with uh, Volume 5, Number 20. That's July 2013 cover date. Uh, the end was penciled by many artists that he'd worked with over his uh, run on Lantern here, including uh, Patrick Gleason, Ethan Van Skyver, Doug Monkey, and many more, uh, including the fellow that drew the comic that we'll be discussing in just a little bit. Uh, during the New 52, he also took up writing Aquaman and a Shazam backup appearing in the f- in uh, blah, 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 appearing in Justice League. Yeah, uh, he also seven, Justice League as well. Seven till fifteen or something like that. I forget. Seven. It was yeah, it was a while because it was also the issue zero of Justice League was a uh, Shazam solo. That's right. It, it, it was in there. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> now John served as a co-producer and creative consultant on the 2011 Green Lantern film, uh, directed by Martin Campbell and starring Ryan Reynolds. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, we're uh, gonna hold that against him. Johns and Gary Frank collaborated on the Batman Colon Earth One original graphic novel released in twenty twelve, and they would release a second volume in twenty fifteen. Uh, that same year Johns also began writing Superman with John Romita Jr. and Klaus Jansen on art to some mixed reviews. Uh, his run was seemingly cut short when Jeff Johns was promoted to president and chief creative officer of DC Entertainment in 2016, now reporting directly to DC president, uh, didn't DC Entertainment president, Diane Nelson. Johns was an executive producer on the 2016 film Batman v Superman, colon, Dawn of Justice. Following negative critical reception to the film, Johns and John Berg were named to jointly run the DC Extended Universe and a newly established Warner Brothers Division DC Films in May 2016. They served as producers on the 2017 film Justice League. In January 2018, after Justice League underperformed at the box office, John Berg was replaced by Walter Hamada as head of DC Films, while Johns was working closely with Hamada on future productions. Johns also co-wrote the story for the Aquaman film with James Wan and Will Beale. Uh, he's also worked in television since around 2006 and is one of the people behind the uh, takeover of the CW and the uh, Berlanti produced shows, uh, The Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow, and Supergirl, as well as the uh, shows Titans, Doom Patrol, Stargirl, and uh, who knows what else that's going to show up on the DC yeah, Universe. It's all, all got his fingerprints on him over there. Mm-hmm. In uh, 2017, Jeff Johns and Gary Frank began the Watchmen slash DCU crossover series Doomsday Clock. And in 2018, he and Richard Donner contributed a story titled The Car to uh, Action Comics number 1000. In June 2018, Johns would step down from his executive role at DC Entertainment, and he entered into a writer slash producer deal with Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment. He opened Mad Ghost Productions. This is a production company that works on film, television, and comic books based on DC Comics properties, and apparently heads up one of the Skate 800 imprints that uh, DC yeah. Comics is opening up. Uh, I think there's like a three Joker story in there at some point, but uh, we don't have very many details. Not really sure about that one, but okay. Yeah. (laughs) Now we jump across the table and meet Ivan Reese. He was born June 11th, 1976 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. 
For three years, he worked for popular Brazilian children's cartoonist Mauricio de Souza. Yeah, Reese began his international career working for Dark Horse Comics on Ghost, starting with issue number 17, August 1996, cover date, and continuing as the regular artist until the series concluded with issue number 36, April 1998, cover date. Other work for Dark Horse included The Mask, Time Cop, and Xena, the Warrior Princess. He later worked for Lightning Comics, who were known to have those bad girl nude variants of their covers, if you remember those. Uh, mm. Actually, a few companies did them. They, this company did, did them the worst, and the most of them, I think. Uh, Ivan penciled an issue of Graham Morrison's The Invisibles, and he became better known for lady, uh, drawing Lady Death at Chaos and Cross-Gen Comics. At Marvel Comics, Reese worked on The Thing and She-Hulk, colon, Long Night, uh, Avengers Icons, colon, Vision, uh, Captain Marvel, Iron Man, The Defenders, and The Avengers. Since 2004, Reese has worked exclusively for DC Comics on titles like Action Comics, Teen Titans, Ran Thanagar War, Superman, and Infinite Crisis. He started penciling Green Lantern Volume 4 with issue number 10, May 2006, cover date, then left Green Lantern after issue number 38, March 2009, cover date, to draw the Blackest Night Limited series, of which we'll be reading the first issue in just another couple of minutes, we promise. Reese penciled its follow-up series, limited series, Brightest Day, July 2010 to June 2011. Cover dates. Reese was uh, the regular penciler of Jeff Johns' run on Aquaman during the New 52. Uh, he would draw it for the first 13 issues before moving on to Justice League, where he replaced Jim Lee. Uh, Jeff Johns was already writing. Now, jo- uh, Johns and Reese uh, introduced the Crime Syndicate of America into the New 52 continuity in Justice League number 23, October 2013 cover date. Uh, you know, they've worked together a lot, is what we're trying to get at here. Yeah. Um, Reese drew the first issue of Grant Morrison's The Multiversity in 2014. I can't believe it's been five years. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, Reese drew the uh, first issue of uh, Brian Michael Bendis's Man of Steel limited series and is currently collaborating with Bendis on the relaunch Superman ongoing. Yeah, he gets he gets big titles and he deserves it. He has been mm-hmm. around a long time. He's got a great style. So, uh, how did we get to the point to have Blackest Night here in the uh, DC and the and the Green Lantern universe? Well. Uh, we're going to kind of give you the short-ish version of how this all went down. Uh, Hal Jordan has had a pretty rough decade. Uh, during Reign of the Superman, Mongol and the cyborg Superman wiped Coast City off the map. And you can check out Cosmic Treadmill episode 65 from back on November 19th, 2017 in our archives for more on that story. We do a deep dive on that whole uh, that whole era there. Yep. And uh, following this event, a grief-stricken Hal would attempt to rebuild a construct version of Coast City. The Guardians uh, see this as an abuse of his Green Lantern powers, which is a... Something they kind of run hot and cold with. Yeah, uh, well, they're, okay. they're not very sure. Uh, sometimes it's cool, sometimes it's not. <laughs> uh, thus, uh, Hal kind of loses his cool. Uh, they they summon him to Oa. He heads there and he thrashes his fellow lanterns along the way. Yep. This is, of course, Emerald Twilight, which we discussed ages ago on the treadmill. This was episode five available in the archives. Yeah, one of the very first uh, full episodes that we did. Mm-hmm. Now going by the name Parallax, Hal Jordan sought to rebuild the universe in a way where everything could be righted. Now this is, of course, Zero Hour, another one that we've gone long form on. You can check out episode 20 of Weird Comics History for discussion on that. Uh, now we don't with these plugs yet? Mm-mm, not yet. All right. Uh, jumping ahead to 1996 and the final night event, Hal Jordan, as Parallax, would sacrifice himself to reignite the sun, dying a hero. And is that one available in the archives? 
Maybe it is. Uh, episode 59 from October 8th, 2017. Uh, we, had a, we had a real good time with that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hal would remain dead for three years during the Day of, Day of Judgment event available in the archives. Uh, nope, not not yet. Okay. No, not that one. No. But in this one, uh, <laughs> this was uh, incidentally Jeff Johns' first DC event. Uh, Hal Jordan would become the Spectre, and he'd remain the Spectre until Green Lantern Rebirth in 2004. So let's get into Green Lantern Rebirth in 2004. Uh, we open with Kyle Rayner crashing back from space alongside a green casket. Uh, at the same time, John, Hal, and Guy are. Heading to a ball game to uh, to watch uh, to watch a game. Uh, Hal, who is still the Spectre, he finds himself being confessed at by everyone in attendance. He's just surrounded by people trying to give penance. Yep. Um, it's worth noting at the same time, Guy Gardner is still a gross Valdarian. Still the warrior guy that can supposedly mm-hmm. create uh, guns Warfing, from his body, yeah. although he that he never really does that except a couple of times. Uh, Oliver Queen searches his basement for a spare power ring Hal had given him, uh, but what he finds instead is Hal himself. Black Hand is acting a fool, and so Hal, as Spectre, unleashes some wrath upon him. Ollie isn't quite sure what to think about that. He, good news is he finds that spare power ring, which, by the way, I find that whole concept of a spare power ring hilarious, but that's another mm-hmm. thing. Guy Gardner's body starts going crazy. It's almost though he's rejecting that Valdarian grossness. He explodes, but eventually the JLA will help put him back together again. Meanwhile, Coast City is somehow back. Well, one building in Coast City anyway, Hal Jordan's apartment building, you know, the important one. Uh, mm-hmm. At Ferris Aircraft, Hal meets up with Carol Ferris. Now, Kyle Rayner is recovering from his crash when his ring announces that Parallax is coming. At the same time, Hal and Carol are reconnecting. Hal tells her he wants to find his way back. And they're soon joined by the Justice League, who would want some answers, especially Batman, who's an incredibly big jerk this whole uh, story. He, he, he doesn't quite trust Hal, okay? He just no. remembers what the guy done. Mm-hmm. Now, John Stewart takes exception at Batman's line of questioning and actually goes to attack him. Hal, as the Spectre, puts a stop to that. Unfortunately, the Parallax's coming threats continue. Uh-oh. Back at the Watchtower, Guy Gardner explodes again, this time returning him to his old Green Lantern look, minus that bowl haircut. More of a punky, spiky mm. do. Back with Kyle, he's suddenly joined by Kilowog? Mm. And Ganthet, who opens that green casket, revealing, duh, dead Hal Jordan, which we kind of figured it would be. Uh, we learn that Kyle has had fetched the corpse from the center of the sun, presumably where it's been since the final night. Meanwhile, the Hal we've followed so far for Rebirth has takes a peek at his power battery and sees Parallax at his reflection. Then it's revealed that Parallax wasn't actually Hal Jordan, but a giant yellow fear bug from outer space, which is one of my favorite uh, sci-fi movies from the 1950s, mm-hmm. uh, who had been imprisoned in the central power battery and was the reason for that yellow impurity in the ring's pre-emerald twilight, where the rings would not work in anything yellow. Uh, when Hal entered and destroyed the battery, he actually helped the fear bug to escape. They tied this into Hal's having graying temples during the Gerard Jones run as well. You see, he wasn't old. He was just tagged by Parallax. Him and Reed Richards were the two yep. uh, main guys. Absolutely. Yeah. They're the, the most susceptible to fear. Apparently. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, now, back with Hal, or one of the Hal's, or actually all of the Hal's, there's a bit of a jockeying for position here. We've got Hal versus Parallax versus the Spectre. 
Uh, here we learn that the Spectre had chosen Hal as his as his you know vessel in hopes of burning out the disease that is Parallax. Now, during the scuffle, Parallax wins for now. For now. He's soon faced with his old friend Sinestro, who, like Kilowog, is somehow alive again. Uh, also, it turns out that Sinestro had met the giant yellow field, a giant yellow fear bug from outer space once before. Maybe at the end of the Engelhart Staten Green Lantern Corps run? Possibly? That's when he was imprisoned in the... Yes, and uh, we talked all about that at the start of our Hal Jordan's Action Comics series of Cosmic Treadmill episodes uh, last November. And uh, the other heroes get involved, and soon it's a PS6 fracas, during which Ollie fires a construct arrow from his ring, which nearly floors him because of uh, the all the amount of will that it took. That's right, he can't handle the, using all that will. Uh, Parallax then detaches from Hal and attempts to latch onto Ganthit. Hal sees a brilliant white light and descends toward it, but doesn't actually cross over. Back on Earth, Ollie's ring flies off his finger and into the casket... Bada-bing, bada-boom, Hal Jordan's back to life. He fights and defeats Sinestro, and all's good, except uh, Batman still isn't convinced. The two exchange words, but Hal's got more important things to deal with. Later on, Batman will punch him in the face, which is fulfilling an important prophecy that Batman must always punch Green Lanterns in the face. Mm -hmm. Uh, After the dust settles, everybody is back in their right bodies. We've got lanterns, we've got a core. We're about to get a brand new volume of Green Lantern with a great big number one on the cover. After Sinestro gets the tar beaten out of him, now this heads out after that, going more into the Sinestro War, he heads into the antimatter universe and the planet of Quard. There he has their weaponers make some new yellow power rings imbued with the essence of Parallax. Ultimately, he recruits them all to the Sinestro Corps, even the Anti-Monitor, which is kind of hilarious when you think about it. I, I just don't picture, like, Anti-Monitor somebody you can just get on your team. Yeah, he, does, he doesn't look like a joiner. He's not going to fit in the van, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it doesn't really... Uh, Parallax is also a member of the Sinestro Corps, which doesn't really make sense. It's got to, like, not only, a, not only a client, you know, he's not mm-hmm. only the president, also a client, but, uh, all right, whatever. Uh, early on, I guess they have to really pad out the numbers so they take anybody. Sure. Uh, Sinestro and his new crew head over to Oa for some of that sweet revenge. They inflict heavy, heavy casualties, most notably free Cyborg Superman and Superman Prime from their science cells. They also kidnap Kyle Rayner, take him back to Quard, and there, there's a whole rescue mission undertaken by Hal, Guy, and John. Just for the purpose of this, that all winds up okay. Nothing really spins out of that too big. Yeah, and the short of it is that the Guardians make amendments to the Book of Oa against the protest of two members, they being uh, Ganthet and Sade. Uh, first, they excise a portion prophesying a event called the Blackest Night. Hey, that's the name of the event the hashtag JL May is covering. How about Look that? Look at that. <laughs> and the uh, Guardians also amend the Ten Laws as follows, partially. Uh, lethal force is authorized to be used against the Sinestro Corps. Lethal force is authorized against all enemies of the Green Lantern Corps. Love and physical relationships between members of the Green Lantern Corps is strictly forbidden, and uh, this particular rule will be repealed during the events of Blackest Night, just a little foreshadowing. And the Vega system is no longer outside the Green Lantern Corps' jurisdiction. 
And this is uh, all we got at first. Uh, eventually, two more laws would be revealed, and they are the Green Lantern Corps take, uh, no longer takes prisoners, and if the Guardians are unable to discharge their sacred duties, command of the Green Lantern Corps falls to Clarice, followed by the illustrious. And these are uh, different and newly assigned uh, classes in the Green Lantern Corps. Uh, to date, the other four laws have not been shown if uh, they even apply at all. Yeah, I believe the only Clarice we've ever known, I might be wrong because I'm not 100% up to date, but was Salak. Mm-hmm. So he at one point became the boss until the Guardians came back, as always happens. You know how, you know how uh, that goes, the ebb and flow do. of Oa. Yes. You know. uh, now that they're able to kill the Sinestro Corps, the, uh, the, they, those guys get overwhelmed by the Green Lanterns in New York City, and they're pretty much destroyed or fractured. You know, they, they fly away. In the fracas, one guardian sacrifices himself to send Superboy Prime far away, while another, named Scar, is scarred. That's pretty much it. I'm not. It's, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, but did, did that guardian's mom name her Scar? In which case, yeah, it was pretty. It was bound to happen. Uh, upset over the turn of events and the impending Blackest Night prophecy that no one knows about, Gambit and Sade create a blue power ring and take off to form a new core. One based on peace and not war, and based on hope, one would say. Also pertinent to this story are the events of Final Crisis, written by Grant Morrison and ultimately drawn by a few talented folks. Uh, This is something people have asked us to tackle for a while on the Cosmic Treadmill. And frankly, Chris and I are pretty intimidated by it, uh, how we're going to parse that out. But for the purposes of what we're going to read in Blackest Night, we'll just say that in that event, uh, Martian Manhunter and Batman die. Mm-hmm. And Batman dies twice, I think. It, it, he does, in a sense, yeah. Well, he <laughs> died in R.I.P., and then he died again in uh, so Final weird. Crisis, yeah. Yeah, now, Aquaman was also dead, uh, then missing, then dead. Uh, at this time, and uh, and his duties have been taken up by Arthur Joseph Curry. There's a guy raised to think he was Aquaman by a mutated Aquaman. Uh, it really had to be for Sword of Atlantis, yeah. Uh, Aquaman showed up during Final Crisis, but this turned out to be a different one from elsewhere in the multiverse. So, for Blackest Night's purposes, he is dead. Now, in the months leading up to the event, those other Lantern Corps colors have been uh, discovered, and each would get, like, their own arc, spin-off, one-shot, all that good stuff. We have the uh, Red Lanterns of Rage, and they're led by Atrocitus. Agent Orange, Larflees, who wields a ring powered by greed. The Yellow Lanterns are the Sinestro Corps, still kicking, even without Sinestro at, the, at this time. Uh, the Blue Lanterns represent hope, and they're headed up by Ganthet and Sade. Uh, the Indigo tri- Tribe uh, represents compassion, and they can uh, teleport sometimes. Something? I don't know. Really, uh, <laughs> they have a weird power. I don't really ever got sure. it. Sure. Uh, the, Lantern, the Violet Lanterns are the Star Sapphires. But what of the black and white lanterns, hmm? White? I don't think there's any white in this one. Oh, not in this one. But anyway, uh, all these colors each have their own entity, by the way, but we're not going to get into all that nonsense because I never liked it anyway. It was stupid as hell. I, uh, I couldn't uh, I couldn't identify them if they knocked on my door with a pizza. I did, one of them's so, a bull, right? And, uh, one's like a whale of well, some One's sort. a whale. Is that the green one? It, it, I don't know. It, doesn't really, it was really silly stuff. Uh, if you don't like our recap, and that's okay, you can go ahead and read Blackest Night number 0, July 2009, which was a free comic book day offering of that year. It runs down all the particulars in a much more condensed fashion and a lot less chuckling and snorting about it, too. So if you don't like the sarcasm, that's the way to do it. But uh, the story that we're about to read really begins in Green Lanterns, volume 4, number 42, 
August 2009 cover date by Johns and Reese. At the end of that issue, Green Lantern, Ash, and Sarek find a black power battery, and Sarek touches it and gets a little spooked by it. Then two giant hands emerge from the battery, and after the word flesh is uttered, Ash and Sarek are killed. Then we jump over to Green Lantern Corps, Volume 2, Number 38, as a September 2009 cover date by Peter DeMasi and Patrick Gleason. In it, fragments of Zan Shear observe glowing different colors of the spectrum. A cloud of black lantern rings courses through the asteroids and shreds them to pebbles. And finally, now... We have Blackest Night, Number 1. Uh, the cover, well, one of the covers is a close-up of a skull, mouth agape. Black lantern rings pour from this yawning maw toward the reader. In the skull's right eye socket is the black lantern insignia, which is like a triangle point down with five vertical lines above it. Uh, kind of reminds me, I don't know if you know about this, Chris, the old packing mm. symbol for do not get wet. Kind of look like an, up, an upended martini glass. Uh any, okay. any okay. traveling musicians out there know because that's what it is. Yeah, don't don't pour glasses on uh, water on this box. Uh, besides that, the cover's got the logo, issue number, all that jazz. Now the variant covers by Ethan Van Skyver and Hi-Fi, and it's got the Justice League or the living members of the Justice League bursting from the lower half of the page. Above them is Black Hand with his hands over the lights of a power battery. All of the Black Lanterns are raging behind him, but. Uh, at this point, we're really getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, you didn't even mention the sketch variant of the first cover, Chris. Why didn't we uh, was there, was there a blank one? Oh, uh, there may have been. Uh, they didn't. They didn't force that on the digital version. <laughs> luckily. Uh, anyway, our story begins in a cemetery during a dark and stormy night. In fact, this is the Wayne family cemetery, and Black Hand is clutching Bruce Wayne's skull. Doing a little uh, Hamlet, a last poor Yorick. Uh, not quite. Now he narrates. Some things are worse than death. Some things, like me. Black Hand is peering directly at Bruce Wayne's skull, but he seems to be talking to someone or something else. Captions tell us that this is Space Sector 2814, Gotham City, the graves of Thomas and Martha Wayne, and the unmarked grave of their son, Bruce. I hear you out there in deep space. I hear your children buzzing like flies. You're hungry. My father said, everyone dies, William. He said, death is the only thing you can count on in this universe. I killed him to prove his point. Very cool. The entity Black Hand spoke to seems to call out from outer space. We see a Black Lantern power battery on top of a craggy rock. Five sharp, sharp mountains or fingers loom behind it, and this is Space Sector 666. We he, we just see the text from somewhere. Yes, I am hungry. Back to Black Hand's narration. He goes, death compels us because powerful or weak, loved or hated, no one escapes death. That includes you. Well, that's a pretty rude revelation to put right on the front page. I mean, come on. Yeah, we did pay, close the book. I paid, I paid four bucks for this thing. Come on yeah. now, buddy. You know, you have to do that. Uh, a mass of millions, perhaps even billions of Black Lantern rings emerge from the Lantern in Sector 666. And on Earth, Black Hand is licking the skull of Bruce Wayne, leaving a really viscous blue trail of spit behind. Uh, he's, he's a really weird guy. I don't like him. Mm, not much, not much. The dead will rise, and you're connected to them all. 
So uh, let's get away from this grody seed into a more sunny location, Coast City, 24 hours later. It is indeed bright and sunny on this day of solemn celebration. How Jordan will narrate, he says, Years ago, the day everyone thought Superman died and was declared a national day of mourning. Since he returned, it's become a day to honor the super beings who gave their lives protecting the world and the innocents we failed to save. A panel shows a cemetery absolutely packed with mourners, and here's why. Among those innocents, the seven million who were incinerated when Mongol and the cyborg Superman destroyed Coast City. People argued over what to do with the land. Some wanted to leave it a graveyard, others a memorial. They said we'd never come back. They said our city would stay dead. They were wrong, because they were afraid. A panel shows a highway leading to Coast City completely clogged with traffic. A billboard by the side of the road reads, Welcome to Coast City, the city without fear. Population, 2,765,321. My brother wasn't. His family wasn't. Hal's brother, sister-in-law, and niece and nephew are in a crowd watching something in the sky. They've got broad smiles on their faces. Everyone is wearing green and white ribbons. Uh, this is the insignia of the day. Little girl says, Daddy, Mommy, it's Uncle Hal. And Hal's brother goes, He's got a secret identity, Jane. Don't say it. I wasn't gonna. You liar, you totally were. She was, yeah. And neither were the people who followed them here. Coast City got a second chance. So did I. My name is Hal Jordan. I'm a captain of the U.S. Air Force. I'm also an officer in the Green Lantern Corps, Space Sector 2814. That's almost got to be a conflict of interest. I would something, think so. Right? It took like two yeah. militaries, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the following splash page shows us what everyone was looking at. The four corpsmen flying above a massive celebratory crowd, fighter jets flanking them to increase the showmanship. This really seems like a really big celebration. Uh, there's an outdoor stage set up and giant balloons with Green Lantern pro, uh, promo flying amid this tremendous crowd. Uh, so let's meet our other corpsmen. My wigmen are former U.S. Marine and Corps sharpshooter John Stewart, former linebacker and Corps bravado Guy Gardner, and artist and Corps conscience Kyle Rayner. One of these lanterns is not like the other. <laughs> it seems like it. Uh, at least one pilot, a friend of Hal's nicknamed Cowgirl, can communicate with Hal. Uh, this, by the way, is Jillian Perlman, a character created by Jeff Johns as a rival for Carol Ferris's affections. But anyway. Yes, yeah, so we hear Cowgirl over the radio. Just, it's a beautiful day for a flyby. Roger that, Cowgirl. And Hal Jordan narrates. John knows that when you're in the military, death is part of the job. Guy and Kyle know when you're in the Green Lantern Corps, death is the only retirement. Really? Do you, do you think like they signed something to that effect? I'd like to know what they think if they know this for a fact. That might be something. Is that an ironclad? <laughs> really? Of and we all know when you're part of the caped community, death opens your front door and walks right in. Sometimes, literally, uh, usually if you're crossing over with vertigo. That's true. That can happen. You got the, the onk on everything. You know your time is up. Uh, Hal remembers all the folks in his life that have died. There's his father in a jet plane crash during an air show that Hal witnessed as a child. Abin Sur, who passed on the power ring before dying in his crash spaceship. 
And then, of course, Coast City, which was destroyed, as we said, by Mongol and Cyborg Superman. But now, all four Lantern Corps members converge on a statue in the center of a ring of pillars. A representative of every branch of the U.S. military is standing in front of a large power battery. Not like actual power battery large, but no. big enough. Uh, the uh, the four lanterns shine their power rings on the battery, igniting it with a green glow that sounds like boosh. <laughs> now Jordan narrates, you never learn to live with it. It just becomes a part of who you are. Your only choice, keep playing or fold. I'd never fold. Yeah, and it looks like they uh, they, they got an advertisement on this, too, because it says no fear yeah. at the bottom of the power battery. Do you so, think you know, they're... They, Part of that bad boy car club, Chris? You ever see it? <laughs> you think one of, one of them's got a tattoo of Calvin peeing on, Calvin he- peeing on, something? on Hector yeah. Hammond or something like that? That <laughs> would make sense. That'd be nice. Yeah. And now, oh, I was, was going to help the uh, reader remember all the messed up things that have happened to the other corpsmen as well. Why not? He says, Cat Matui. John met her when she was still overcompensating for inheriting Sinestro's ring, and John was still overcompensating for inheriting mine. The shadows they were brought in, br- they were in, brought them together, and what, and they found what Carol and I had never seemed to: commitment, not to an aircraft company or an intergalactic police force, but to each other. And the intergalactic police force, to be specific. Them yeah. too, yeah, them, them also, right. <laughs> yes. uh, now, a panel shows the two of them in Green Lantern uniforms working together. The next shows Star Sapphire clawing Cat Matui to her bloody death. Cat Matui died at the hands of Star Sapphire. Months later, John would make a mistake trying to prevent the destruction of a planet. Now, this scene shows John before a large machine, which doesn't really tell us what happened. Uh, it turns out John accidentally destroyed the planet Zanshi while trying to protect it from the anti-life equation during the Cosmic Odyssey event during uh, by uh, Jim Starlin and Mike Mignola. Yeah, uh, they kind of don't really show that very well. It's like him from just like a big, chunky, weird, like steampunk machine. It's like, yeah. could have said more about what happened there. But anyway... Hal Jordan says, Kyle's girlfriend, Alex, was murdered by a psychopath named Major Force when Kyle first wore the ring. He found her folded in his refrigerator. This panel uh, pretty well shows what's being described. Uh, not too graphic, though. Uh, or I guess maybe we could say it could have could have been more graphic. Could have been more graphic. The original uh, rendering, it was more graphic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, we actually already talked about this issue way back in episode 39 of the Cosmic Treadmill, and that, that was a V. Ken Marion request. It was, it was. Uh, yeah, and I, I was surprised. I felt like it, just yesterday we did that, but no. It does feel like it was much more recent. Hal Jordan continues to narrate, Jade was another woman Kyle loved, the daughter of Alan Scott. For a time, she wore a ring. She died in space, saving a dozen sectors. We see Alan Scott cradling Jade as she dissipated, Kyle looking on in anguish. Now, this happened during the lead-up to the Infinite Crisis event, uh, though to be fair, uh, things had been rocky between the two of them at this point. It was kind of an on-and-off thing going on up to that point. Fact is, after his on-off girlfriend Ice returned, Gardner is the only one of us who's had a happy ending. And uh, Ice had been killed by the Overmaster in Justice League Task Force Number 14, July 1994, cover date, though she had been resurrected before Blackest Night in Birds of Prey 104, May 2007, cover date. And there he is, planting a big old smooch on his chilly girlfriend. Hal Jordan says, none of us thought we'd ever be envious of Guy Gardner. But here we are, 
I know what John's going to say before he says it. And John says, I wish I could build Zanchi like you've rebuilt Coast City. We rebuilt this town together, John. Guy pipes in. We rebuilt the whole damn Green Lantern Corps together. Hey. <laughs> and then Kyle goes, and we'll keep that torch burning. Uh, hey, thanks for showing up, Kyle. That's great. <laughs> and with that, the, uh, the four fellas split up, each remembering their respective tragedies and the lives they claimed. Thanks for being part of this, cowgirl. <laughs> I wouldn't miss a superhero. And the little girl from the crowd says, I love you, Green Lantern. She needs to be like three or four years older before. <laughs> a little while, a couple years. Come, come, me, look not me too up. Many, not too <laughs> many. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, now we cut over to Smallville, and we're at the grave of Jonathan Kent. Uh, he passed after a heart attack in Action Comics issue 870 from December 2008 cover. Yeah, Martha's there clutching onto Clark while Connor hangs around, kind of in the background. I, I should have been here. It could have been me instead of. Martha says, don't slouch now, Connor. Jonathan wouldn't want that. Yeah, the one thing people remember about Jonathan Kent is how strongly he felt about good posture. Old straight back Kent, they called him. Mm, that's said, it. Boy, he, he could stand like no one else. He'd want you both to stand up straight. To which Clark says, we are, Ma. Yeah, give us a break. Uh, Omar to Pittsburgh, where it is raining pretty heavily. We've got a, we've got some familiar faces at the gravesite of Ronnie Raymond. Yeah, a woman named Johanna says, I, um, I wish I got to meet the other half of the Firestar Matrix you two created, Professor Stein. Ronnie Raymond was one, more than one side of an equation, Miss Hewitt. Uh, I didn't mean to. Um, I'm sorry. And Jason Rouch goes, Is there anything special you want to do for him today, Professor? I mean, uh, besides standing around in the rain and making uh, the clone of Victor Hewitt feel badly, he means. Yes. I've said the prayer for Ronnie every morning since he died, Jason. Today is no different. And as Professor Stein continues to ponder the grave, Jason and Johanna have a private conversation in hushed tones. Jason says, You know it's bad when a man of science turns to God. Jason, I... And you need to watch what you say, Jen. Ronnie Raymond was like Professor Stein's son. Uh, I think we should become Firestorm. Didn't you hear me? Not in front of Professor Stein. And Johanna points out that the flowers left at the graves around them are all wilted and browning. She says, but I really think we need to check the toxicity levels around here. Look at the trees and the grass. It's raining, but everything's dying. Mm, we shift scenes over to San Francisco where the Teen Titans are at Titans Tower. Specifically, the Titans Memorial where fallen members have their own statues. Yes, and Kid Flash looks at his statue and says, Didn't even look like me, Cassie. We took your statue down anyway, Bart. I wish you could take them all down. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a creepy spot, isn't it? Like, it's just a yeah. collection of statues of people that died violently, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of haunted over here. Uh, Kid Flash was killed by the rogues while acting as the Flash in Flash, colon, the fastest man alive, number 13, August 2007, cover date. Though he'd be re resurrected prior to Brockus Knight, Final Crisis, colon, Legion of Three Worlds, number 3, April 2009. Uh, at Avernus, the hidden graveyard of the rogues in Central City, they're having their own ceremony standing before a statue of Captain Boomerang. Boomerang was killed by Tim Drake's father, Jack, in Identity Crisis Number 5, December 2004, cover date. 
And also standing there is his son. Uh, he's uh, standing there with his arms folded, uh, and it turns out they really didn't have the best relationship. Yeah, he says, thought today was supposed to be for remembering Eros. And Axel Walker goes, it's all a matter of perspective, Owen. You might not understand what it means to be a rogue, but your father did. Heatwave says, da, we wouldn't miss this. Mira Master goes, what is his accent? Mira Master, is he Scottish? I think he might. Not that I can do a Scottish. I was going to do Australian, I messed it up, so whatever. (laughs) And we brought enough beer to get everyone buried in this place, a blind, bloody drunk. Oh, blah, blah. (laughs) Captain Cold says, what are friends for, eh, digger? Next, we go to Chicago, and we're standing at the grave of Ted Cord. Uh, Ted had his, blame, his blah, 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 brains blown out by Maxwell Lord in Countdown to Infinite Crisis Number 1 from May 2005. Uh, several members of the former Justice League International have gathered to give their respects. Yeah, Fire says, if anyone's got some words to say, it's going to be Michael, not you, guy. Well, Goldie hadn't said anything about Blue Beetle. Black Canary says, If you have something to say, Booster, you should say it. We've got a lot of graves to put flowers on today. And a petal from the Rose Dinah just placed on the grave wilts and falls away. Ooh. Over in Metropolis at Valhalla Cemetery, this should cover most of the other dead heroes that we haven't seen yet. Uh, right away, we can see statues of Dr. Midnight, the Golden Age Sandman, Dr. Fate, and Jade, among others. Uh, Midnight was among the Golden Ages killed by Extent during Zero Hour. His death occurred in Zero Hour Crisis in Time number 2, September 1994. Sandman sacrificed himself in JSA Secret Files and Origins number 1, August 1999, cover date. Dr. Fate was another Extent kill. His death occurred in Zero Hour Crisis in Time number 2, September 1994, cover date. But he was replaced by a very... Cool, Dr. Faye, wasn't he? Oh, the hippest. Uh, and Jay died during the Ranthanagar War, Infinite Christ Special, colon, Ranthanagar War number one, April 2006, cover date. Many heroes and villains are milling about this Valhalla Cemetery, though. I swear that's Enchantress riding a tornado in the background. I don't, I don't think it is, but it could be. <laughs> Kyle Rainer goes, look at how many people showed. And Alan Scott said, look at how many people we lost. Kind of a uh, glass half empty person there. Come on, there, guy. Yeah, on. We, I know that your sciatic is killing you, but enough. Uh, <laughs> Adam Smasher and Damage are standing before a statue of Al Pratt, the Golden Age Adam, uh, that he was killed also by Extant in Zero Hour Crisis in Time number three, September 1994, cover date. And Adam Smasher goes, I know your father wasn't part of your life like he was mine, Damage, but can you at least pretend to give a damn? Can you at least face him? Damage says, I'm not turning my back on my father, Adam Smasher. I'm looking at the Freedom Fighters. And also, he never asked to be born. It's, you know, uh, really. <laughs> and indeed, there are statues of them uh, clustered adjacent to Al Pratt. The Secret Society murdered them when I was on their team. I watched them die. I heard them die. I was left alive with a crushed nasal cavity and a mangled profile. And you want me to face my father, Adam Smasher? Hell. I can't face anyone. It's probably those full face masks your whole lineage wears. Uh, maybe try something lighter, maybe like a domino mask or yeah, something? You know, let us see your pretty face, exactly. Hmm. You know, you just cover it up. Uh, cut over to Amnesty Bay, the grave of Aquaman, a.k.a. Arthur Curry. Uh, Aquaman was killed by Narwhal after becoming the Dweller of the Depths in Aquaman's colon Sword of Atlantis number 50, March 2007 cover date. 
So uh, Mera and Garth are there at the gravesite, uh, waves crashing behind them. As Garth goes, Aquaman shouldn't be buried on land. Your husband should be with his people, Mara, behind, beneath the sea. Mara says, Arthur's people tried to murder him when he was a child, Garth. They hated him because he had blonde hair. That's not why. And they hated you because of your violet eyes. If it wasn't for Arthur, the Atlanteans would have cut them out. They can be a superstitious and violent people. They're pretty nasty, too. Though, in fairness, I think uh, Garth's violet eyes might have been like the hundredth thing to hate about him. No, really? That was, it was yeah. a long list. The, yeah. tri- the tribal tattoos were a lot further up that list. <laughs> uh, Arthur's mother died, bringing him back to the shore, back to his father. This is where he felt safe, Garth. This is what he wanted. There's a magnificent tomb waiting for him in Atlantis. It's among the most beautiful coral fields, surrounded by sea life of all kings waiting to see their savior. The tomb is side by side with the other great leaders of our city and his son, your son. Mara, please give me the authorization to have his remains moved. The dirt is no place for a king of the seas. And offshore, we can see that the water is filling up with dead fish. Back to Gotham City, Alfred is at the Wayne Family Cemetery about to place a bouquet of roses on the unmarked grave of Bruce Wayne. But uh, we know it had been seriously vandalized, and uh, of course the corpse was licked by Black Hand. Uh, And now Alfred knows it as well. Yeah, he says, oh no, I've made a terrible mistake. He knows that Master Bruce preferred tulips. Now, over in Washington, D.C., we're in the basement of the Hall of Justice. Uh, that's, the, of course, the headquarters of the Justice League of America. Yeah, they have something kind of uh, alarming hidden in their basement. Yes, it uh, takes uh, poor Barry Allen by surprise. He goes, uh, there's a morgue for the League's enemies three stories below the meeting room? Hal Jordan says, except for your rogues. Word is they have some kind of graveyard near Central City, but no one's been able to find it. I'll find it. Now, Barry Allen, who had returned to the world only recently, runs back and forth reading the many names stenciled on the drawers containing the corpses of these relevant villains. And let's list them off, shall we? There's Jeffrey Thibodeau, a.k.a. Black Mass. He died off-panel sometime after Salvation Run 2007 to 2008. Toby Manning, a.k.a. Terra Man, ripped in half by Black Adam in 52 number 3, July 2006, cover date. Kenny Braverman, a.k.a. Conduit, burned out by kryptonite radiation in Action Comics number 711, July 1995, cover date. Mika Love, also known as the Enforcer, killed in combat with an Amazon in Suicide Squad number 58, October 1991, cover date. John Ravenhair, a.k.a. the Black Bison. He was killed by a rampaging specter during Day of Vengeance number 1, June 2005, cover date. Crystal Frost, also known as Killer Frost 1, the first one, uh, she was killed after kissing Firestorm in Firestorm Volume 2, number 21, March 1984. Yeah, it is absorbed. It's an absorption... Paradox or whatever, yep. Uh, John Monroe, a.k.a. the Weasel, he was killed by a mind-controlled Rick Flag during Doom Patrol slash Suicide Squad special number one, March 1988, cover date. Arthur Light, a.k.a. Dr. Light, died in Final Crisis colon Revelations number one, October 2008, cover date. Baron Blitzkrieg, whose alter ego was unknown, was fried by Superboy Prime in Identity Crisis number seven, 
June 2006 cover date. John Malone, a.k.a. Fastball, killed by an OMAC in the OMAC Project Number 6, November 2005 cover. Hudson Pyle, a.k.a. The Cavalier. He committed suicide by cop during uh, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight number 34 back in July 1992 cover. Clifford Zemeck, also known as Major Force. He was killed in battle with Captain Adam during Battle for Bludhaven number 6, the September 2006 cover date. Though, other writers uh, might not have known that because they had him show up alive and well somewhere in the interim. Uh, you got a name like Major Force, you know, you got to use a character. It's too good. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. A copperhead who died as a John Doe, he was killed by Manhunter, the Kate Spencer one, after a murderous rampage in Manhunter Volume 3, Number 1, October 2004, cover date. Laura DeMille, a.k.a. Madame Rouge, was killed by Beast Boy during the search for the Doom Patrol story in New Teen Titans Number 15, January 1982, cover date. Maxwell Lord had his neck snapped by Wonder Woman in Wonder Woman Volume 2, number 219, September 2005, cover date. Hannibal Bates, a.k.a. Everyman, killed by poison in Green Arrow, Black Canary, number 29, August 2010, cover date. Henry King Sr., a.k.a. Brainwave, he died protecting his son from the ultra-humanite. This was in Infinity, Inc., number 10, January 1985, cover date. Jonathan Chaval, a.k.a. The Monocle, could not escape the Manhunter. This is uh, Kate Spencer again, and this is Manhunter, volume 3, number 9, June 2005, cover date. Stephen Shop, also known as The Gambler, he committed suicide in Infinity, Inc., number 35, back in February 1987, cover. Jor, or Jor Makent, a.k.a. The Icicle, was killed in Kronos Lab during Crisis on Infinite Earths, number 10, January 1986, cover date. Roger Hayden, a.k.a. Psycho Pirate, received a fatal eye gouge all the way through the back of his head by Black Adam in Infinite Crisis number 6, May 2006 cover date. Isaac Bowne, a.k.a. The Fiddler, was killed by Deadshot under orders from Mockingbird in Villains United number 1, July 2005 cover date. Clifford DeVoe, The Thinker, was sent into cyberspace in Flash volume 2, number 134, February 1998 cover date. The Alexander Luther of Earth 2 was killed by the Joker at the end of Infinite Crisis number 7. This is June 2006 cover date. Neil Emerson, a.k.a. Dr. Polaris, he was exploded by the human bomb back in Infinite Crisis number 1, December 2005 cover date. Lawrence Bolotinsky, a.k.a. Bolt, he was killed by his own son during Terror Titans number 3, February 2009 cover date. Bertram Lavin, Lar- Bertram Larvin, Larvin, a.k.a. the Bug Larvin, yes. Uh, we, we know him better as the Bug-Eyed Bandit. He was uh, killed by Shadow Demons during Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12, March 1986 cover. He made it all the way to the 12th issue, and to, to get mm-hmm. killed then, it's like, jeez. Tackled on the one-yard line. Poor yeah. guy. Uh, Al Jordan then says, The plan was to bring over the remains of our friends, too, but we didn't want to rob the families of paying their respects. The families of villains, however, uh, we really don't care. About we don't them. care what they think. Nah. If their true names were public post-mortem, they were buried at the Valhalla Cemetery in Metropolis under high security. If their identities were still secret, they were sent home. And if their identities were secret but we wanted people to know, we sent the bodies to TMZ.com. Oh, they always release the hot goss. You know how they mm-hmm. are. Uh, Barry Allen pauses at the drawer for Psycho Pirate and says... Why do you need to put their remains in a vault? Dick Grayson uncovered a body-snatching operation that was harvesting superhuman parts for reuse. 
You're serious. This is an example of the kind of sick and twisted things we've had to deal with since you were lost to the Speed Force, Barry. Yeah, and uh, not to mention, like, the direct market exploded and made things real crazy. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Barry says, the guilty have gotten guiltier, and Batman, Aquaman, and the Martian Manhunter are all dead because of it? So who else? Who else died while I was gone? I want to know, Hal. Hal Jordan pauses, then holds up right hand, his right hand, his power ring glowing, and says, Okay. Outbursts a wonderful two-page spread of all the heroes in the DCU that have died since Crisis on Infinite Earths. Now, this image would make one heck of a poster if, uh, you know, if everything weren't colored green. And if it weren't kind of a morbid take, we'd call the dead people, but... Sure, sure. Uh, Barry Allen zeroes in on Firestorm and says, Ronnie, killed by the Shadow Thief in Identity Crisis number 5, December 2004, cover date. And then he catches sight of Ralph and Sue Dibney. Uh, Sue was murdered by Gene Loring in Identity Crisis number 1, August 2004, cover date. Ralph sacrificed himself in 52, number 42, April 2007, cover date. He became a ghost detective in the afterlife alongside Sue. Oh, no. God, please, no. Not, not them. Not Ralph and Sue, too. How, Hal? Why? And Hal Jordan narrates, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, we hear you, bud. We've been trying. We tried to explain uh, it. It's a little, <laughs> a little weird, but okay. So uh, let's ditch that rather uncomfortable scene and head over to St. Rock. St. Rock? One of those. Sure. Where, uh, I see these are those words that you never say out loud. No. Uh, where <laughs> Hawkman and Hawkgirl are hanging out at the Stone Chat Museum, as they do. Hawkman's on the phone with Ray Palmer, a.k.a. the modern Adam. How the hell can you even ask me that? How can you even think about it, Ray? And Ray says... I need a friend to come with me, Carter. I can't go alone. Forget it. Please, get hold the receiver away from your ear. I'm coming through to talk face to face. No, Ray, you're not. And Carter Hall crushes the phone in his hand and smashes the base against the wall. Fairly well smashing through the wall in the process. Yeah, Hawkgirl shows up and says, Carter, Carter, stop. Gene Loring murdered Sue Dibney, Kendra, in some in t- insane attempt to lure the Adam back to her. And today, Ray wants to visit her? If he visits Gene's grave, she gets what she wanted. This isn't about Gene. It's about Ray. He needs closure. He has it. She's dead. And there's an absolute addition of the event where it happened to prove it, so. <laughs> and unlike you and I, she won't be reincarnated into the next life. Gene was troubled. So am I. Carter removes his helmet. Uh, sort of weird the two of them are just hanging around in their costumes, but all right. You figure that'd get in the way, right? I would think so, yeah. <laughs> Gene Loring destroyed a love that was as strong as ours was, and ours should be. It's our destiny. Destiny and love are not the same thing. You can't understand how it feels to have someone for centuries and then lose them, even though they're standing right in front of you. They're supposed to. The more you tell someone what they're supposed to do, the more they fight against it. You tell them, girl. Mm-mm-mm. And and it always comes back to this same thing here. Every time with Hawkman, you can't escape it during this time. Yep. It's all about, uh, why, why, why don't you love me? <laughs> you, you don't have any memories of our previous lives like I do. Jean did something I've never seen anyone do in all my years with the League, Kendra. She made the Atom feel small. And the Atom is indeed small. We see him sitting on top of his desk next to the telephone in some file folders. 
The top folder reads The Last Will and Testament of Gene Loring, and next to it is a book titled Drowning in the Time Pool, colon, The Murder of Sue Dibney by Roy Raymond Jr. There's also a picture of the JLA from about 2005 there, I'd say, and hilariously, a framed picture of himself standing on Hawkman's shoulder. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> There's a phone up, Doc. Please hang up and call again. If you need assistance, please dial the operator. See, phones used to do that, kids. But ask, mm-hmm. ask your parents. And, uh, or grandparents. And, or maybe your grandparents, yeah. Uh, back at the Hall of Justice, Hal Jordan's telling Barry Allen all about the death of Sue Dibney. Which, as mentioned, took place in the pages of Identity Crisis by Brad Meltzer and Riggs Morales. Hal Jordan narrates the scene. I tell Barry how Ralph broke down after Sue died. How Felix Faust led the elongated man to his death. And the fastest man alive does something I haven't seen him do since he's been back. He sits down. Iris always thought Jean was a little odd. She seemed to brag a lot. Like she had something to prove. Murdering Sue? Well, it was claimed to be an accident, even though she did bring a flamethrower along for some unknown reason. The whole thing really was kind of flimsy, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Iris and Sue used to get coffee with Jane once a month. They'd invite Carol, but she was always wor- Carol? What, what about? Carol's still running Ferris Air, but we haven't been together for a long time, Barry. It's better this way. She's safe. Plus, he's just swimming in women these days. He does not need uh, to worry no. about that, buddy. Now, to show how safe Carol Ferris is, a panel depicting her as Star Sapphire flying, fighting alongside her squad against some members of the Sinestro Corps is shown. Uh, just then, a hologram of Alfred Pennyworth emerges from the center of the JLA meeting table. Uh, hello? Hello? Is anyone there? Alfred? Uh, Richard tried to argue with me. He told me it wasn't safe, but I wanted to honor Bruce's wishes, to be buried next to his parents. What have I done? Mm, we zip over to Space Sector Zero, above planet Oa, which captions explain is a central precinct of the Green Lantern Corps, the citadel of the Guardians of the Universe, the immortal founders of the Green Lantern Corps. The Guardians hover above some kind of projection of war between the various multicolored Lantern Corps. We can see bolts of differently colored light lashing out, kind of... I mean, something's going on, multicolored explosions here and there against a maelstrom of, like, stuff. You get the idea, is mm. what I'm saying. Yes, here. indeed. One of the Guardians, uh, the Guardian says, uh, well, how, how do we do his voice again? Uh, we we'll kind of trying to do it like a Moisha, you know, something like Moisha. that. Yeah. We, we have failed. The War of Light has erupted. And the Guardian shows more specific scenes of battle. Uh, there's a star sapphire against a Sinestro Corps robot. Mongol rampaging with several yellow rings. Also, red lanterns fa- fighting green lanterns on the planet Yzmalt. And blue lanterns facing off against Larflees and his orange constructs. In nearly every sector, the lanterns clash. Emotion runs rampant. Another guardian says, but look here, fellow guardians. I see a shadow moving across the universe. A shadow from, say, Sector 666? Yes, and it is approaching us. On Oa, Kilowog is getting some strange reports from Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. Kilowog and a crew of lanterns are busy repairing the power battery after whatever most recent thing that was that destroyed it. Kilowog says, Black Rigs! To which Kyle says, They went through a shield construct we threw up like it was tissue paper. With the Owen battery shell gone, there's nothing to stop. Guy, you hear, you hear that? What? 
Sounds like flies. A massive number of black lantern rings have reached the perimeter of Oa, where a group of lanterns are taken off guard. Yeah, they make a noise like whoosh, 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 which in the uh, number they're showing up must be deafening or damn near. I gotta say, I wouldn't think it would be like flies. It would be more like something slicing at your ear, but <laughs> yes, yeah. guess they would know. I don't know what it sounds like. Uh, one of the guardians says, I fear Gantt was correct. The coming of the blackest night cannot be prevented, only confronted. We must call a go black. We, we must call for all our green lanterns to return to Oa. Then Scar, that's the uh, scarred guardian, looking creepy as all get out, speaks up and says, No, fellow guardians, they will never receive our call for help. Well, why not? Because it will never be made. Mm, Scar dives at the throats of one of the guardians and takes a bite, letting loose a shower of yellow blood. Uh, Meanwhile, the Black Lantern Rings have penetrated Oa's defenses. Scar rips out the heart of the dying guardian and holds it aloft. And then uh, sacrifices it to Kali Ma from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Not quite. Uh, first, uh, in, in the cr- first, we're going to jump to the crypts of the Green Lantern Corps, where a Moro of Sector Six 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 is a cloak-wearing lantern with an underbite. He stands watch as crypt keeper. The Black Lantern rings are swarming in, overwhelming Moro easily. Inside, the rings are more clearly saying "flesh" and begin to hover around some Dead Lantern Corps members. Outside, it is chaos. Kyle says they look like black rings. Brick the Lantern says black. Select, get the blue guys on the horn. I am trying, but they are not responding. Scar holds the heart of the dead guardian and is now smoldering, and it looks like ash. Yeah, she says, You abandoned emotion eons ago. Your hearts are useless. Somehow, Scar is able to absorb the power of another guardian through this smoldering heart, uh, while the Black Lantern rings start to wake up the dead. Ooh, and it's going on all around the universe. Uh, in Gotham City, Hal Jordan and Barry Allen stand by Bruce Wayne's desecrated gravesite. Barry says, they took they took Bruce's skull? Why would someone take Bruce's skull? Spoken like someone who's never listened to heavy metal. Mm-hmm. I think the question we should answer first are, who knew he was buried here, and who knew Bruce was Batman? A black lantern ring makes it over to Mars, where it hovers above the body of the Martian Manhunter. It goes, John Jones of Mars. The other rings continue their search, uttering flesh, flesh along the way. One of them says, Get Matui of Kuragur. Another one says, Roddy Raymond of Earth. Back on Oa, Scar is... Puking up some tar-like substance, which is pleasant. Uh, and the other garden guardians uh, seem to be trapped within it, which is uh, equally pleasant. Even nicer, that's good. <laughs> the darkness cannot feast on your hearts. They need to hunt full ones. In Valhalla Cemetery, many Black Lantern Rings find their new wearers. T-Tyler of Earth. Ryan Kendall of Earth. Roy Lincoln of Earth. El Pratt of Earth. Jenny Lynn Hayden of Earth. And over in the Rogue's Secret Cemetery. Roscoe Dillon of Earth. Lisa Snot of Earth. Digger Hawkness of Earth. Jump down to Amnesty Bay. Wow, you know, it's like we visited all these places for a reason, Chris. It's oh, it's cool. almost. Yeah, yeah it's a roadmap. Yeah. I, I would not have recognized these places otherwise. No, sir. Arthur Curry of Earth. 
Rise. And with that, all the dead Green Lanterns are now back in desiccated zombie form. All wearing their Black Lantern uniforms, which warranted whole new lines of action figures to collect. Absolutely. Guy Gardner reacts with a, what the? (laughs) On Earth, Gal and Barry get their own visitor. The Martian Manhunter who goes, huh? Barry, you shouldn't be back. You should both be dead. John? And of course, it's the Martian Manhunter in a glorious Black Lantern uniform. I'm telling you, some of these characters have never looked better than they, they should hang on to the uniform if they <laughs> yes. come back. Uh, we jump back to Stone Chat Museum, and Hawkman is, uh, as usual, still in a snit. Where are you going? Out. At least call Ray back. You're his best friend. You're all he has right now. We see some obvious Black Lanterns sneaking into the museum, though uh, we can't see who they are quite just yet. And Hawkman says, And I guess Ray's all I have. Carter, damn it. Why won't you put down the weapons and talk? We see a Black Lantern's eye view of this scene, and Hawkman is rendered entirely in red. Kendra, on the other hand, glows in violet. Yeah, the ring says, Rage. Hawkman, who rages a lot, says, Why should I why, why should I talk to you, Kendra? Why are you even here? The Justice Society. They say you've gotten more violent every time you've been reborn. They say Hawkgirl used to keep you calm, but I can't. I mean, she could, but she won't, and uh, she I guess she doesn't have she to. She doesn't so. have to. That's important yeah. right there. <laughs> and I'm worried about you. Why? Why are you worried about me? You know our curse better than I do. You know in every past life when our souls admitted their love, the hourglass turned over, and we died before our time. We jump back into Black Lantern vision here. Yeah, Carter's still red, Kendra's violet. Doesn't matter. You don't love me. Isn't that what you've been saying? Isn't that what you're saying now? I'm saying... I've been saying that I refuse to give control over my life to destiny and curses, no matter how hard that is. And God, it's so hard. The black ring, one of the black rings goes, Rage! And another says, Love! I don't want you to die, Carter. I don't want to give up control. I never wanted to control you, Kendra. It was never about control. And I never wanted to force you to feel anything you don't. Kendra is crying now. A tear runs from beneath her mask. She probably should just take it off. Yeah. It's, I, it, it, you know, they're wearing their full costume still. During this whole touching scene, they're both wearing their <laughs> Hawkman costumes. I know. You didn't force it, Carter. I, I do love... Just then, a, a, something a spear. Jams, a spear jams through Kendra, busting out of her chest with a bloody clash. To which Hawkman goes, Kendra! And then Carter gets smacked in the face by a spiked mace. <gasps> hey, Sue, I smell a mystery. It's Ralph and Sue Dibney in horrible zombie forms. Ralph yeah. could still elongate himself, so that's goose at good and makes it even <laughs> grosser. <laughs> Ralph! Uh, Ralph whaps him again with the mace, knocking Hawkman's helmet off. Hiya, winged wonder. You want to know what Hawkgirl was going to whisper so sweetly in your ear, Carter? All of us knew it. She hated you. Carter tries to punch Ralph in the stomach, but it has no effect because he's very elastic. 
Uh, Ralph grabs Carter's face with elongated fingers, forcing him back, and then bashes him over and over with the mace while screaming. Hawk girl hated Hawkman! When Carter is subdued, Ralph goes back to Sue's side. Her Black Lantern logo is, hers is like different. It's like right on her chest. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, she's just wearing kind of a low cut, tattered gray gown. They were never as close as us, were they, Bun? Kendra reaches out to Carter and struggles to touch him. Carter, I never hated. I, I, I love. You. They touch hands at this and she dies. Kendra! Black Ring says, Feed. Sue Dibney reaches into Kendra's chest and draws energy right from her heart. Uh, Ralph does the same to Carter, though he is still quite alive. I'll kill you, whatever the hell you are. You can't! Ralph removes Carter's heart completely and it starts to smolder. And suddenly, Blackhead shows up. Why not? He's hmm. wearing a Black Lantern costume, still clutching Bruce Wayne's skull, which is oozing that weird blue spit that Blackhead laid on it earlier. Very gross. Hmm. It's like when you drool and you can never get quite dry. Right? Never get up there, you know. <laughs> Hawk man. Hawk girl. You won't escape death this time. Black Ring says, power levels 0.1%. Power levels 0.02%. Death will take us all, and the universe will finally be at peace. Carter Hall of Earth, Kendra Sondras of Earth, rise. Spooky stuff, everybody! Uh, so that's just the beginning of the Blackest Night event, but of course mm-hmm. there is plenty more to come. We're going to take a little break and give a little promo for the hashtag JLMay thing going on. When we come back, we'll tell you a little bit more about Blackest Night. John Jones of Mars. ago, a crashing wave of light erupted across the DC Universe. A multicolored spectrum of energy bathed the cosmos in a war of light. Rage clashed against passion. Hope sought to stifle fear. Greed to choke out compassion. And in the middle of it all, the will to keep going and fight for all. Now this war has come to the surface of our planet, because while the light fights, The darkness rises.
Hero, villain, friend, foe, family. Across the universe, the dead have risen, and it's going to take every available podcaster to fight back. In 2016, we covered the dawn of the Justice League with Justice League Year One. In 2017, we soaked in the seminal justice. Last year, we threw it back to the Silver Age. But this year's JLMA podcast event covers an event that knows not the boundaries of death itself. JLMA covers Blackest Night in celebration of the event's 10-year anniversary. Our coverage begins on April 30th with the podcast of OA and proceeds through the entire month of May with Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, The Idolhead of Diablo, The Fire and Water Podcast, Head Speaks, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Waiting for Doom, Task Force X, The Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, The Dr. DC Podcast, The Birds of Prey Podcast, Justice's First Dawn, and ends with the Lantern Cast. So join us this May, because across the DC Universe, the dead have risen. Where will you be? Now we're back. Hey. Just, fi- just finished Black as Night number one, but then what happened? Well, essentially you get a zombie story featuring the greatest dead characters of the DC Universe. Turns out, however, that the beings being resurrected are not the original parties, which Deadman figures out when Boston Brand is resurrected. However, he is still in his ghost form. Ooh, so the plot thickens somehow. Uh, we could reveal the rest of the story, but we're going to leave that up to the fine podcasts and blogs comprising the rest of the hashtag JLMay special on Blackest Night. And the list of those are in order of releases, as uh, we hope should it. <laughs> we hope uh, that's what we're told. Uh, the podcast of Oa, they already handled Black Blackest Night number zero and Green Lantern number forty three. You can go check that out right now. The idle head of Diablo will be handling Blackest Night number two and Green Lantern volume four number forty five. The Fire and Water podcast will tackle Blackest Night number three, and Head Speaks will do Blackest Night number four. Coffee and Comics podcast will do Blackest Night five. Long Box Crusade will handle Blackest Night 6. And the Lantern cast will do Blackest Night number 7 and 8 and Green Lantern Volume 4 number 52. And the rest of the gang will be pitching in some other info on the tie-ins to this sprawling comic book event. We have Waiting for Doom will do Doom Patrol Volume 5 number 4 and number 5. Task Force X will handle Suicide Squad number 67 and Secret Six issues 17 through 18. Justice's First Dawn will cover Justice League of America Volume 2 number 38 and 40. Coffee and Comics Podcast will come back to cover Adventure Comics Volume 2 number 4 through number 7 and Untold Tales of the Blackest Night number 1. Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour will do Starman Volume 2, Number 81. Dr. DC will cover Booster Gold Volume 2, Issues 26 and 27. Birds of Prey Podcast will do the Blackest Night, colon, JSA miniseries, Issues 1 through 3. And, of course, you can find the uh, you know actual websites for all those podcasts on our show notes uh, on our chrisandreggie.com uh, site. Be sure to check out the whole event through all these ter- uh, terrific podcasts, all found by searching hashtag JLMay on your favorite social media purveyor. Is that right? 
you call platform it? purveyor per platform uh, that's better per one platform. of those things it's not they really a good it. it's more of a service in a sense we it's hard to say mm-hmm. uh anyway we, we, we let's let's handle some mail what do you say yeah, it's been a little while, so we're going to get right into some listener mail here. First one comes from Bill Dunleavy, also known as Doc Strange, and he's talking about episode number 138. He says, Loving the show, guys. This episode was hilarious. Definitely check out the film Tenebrae. It's a Dario Argento film. Suspiria is another great one, maybe his best. Got a good laugh when you mentioned Night of the Howling Beast. That's a Paul Nashy, Nashy one of those, yeah. flick. And uh, most of those are pretty wild, low-budget flicks with some action, with the same action. Uh, kind of funny to watch, for no, if for no other reason. Thanks for what you guys do. Billy D. And he was talking about our uh, episode where we discussed uh, action number 37. Right. And we got into the uh, video nasty chat, which ended up being a list of movies that I want to see. You know, it's essentially what that <laughs> is. Much. You know, and I, I bet most of them, I bet, are not even really anything too crazy. You know, to be oh, I'm sure just, they're not. Uh, yeah, you know, so they 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 rub someone the wrong way. Somebody said the wrong thing, uh, which kind of leads into our next uh, little bit here. Mario Moro Giovanelli uh, concerning that very same episode wrote. Hello, guys. Being of British origin, we especially enjoyed your latest episode of the podcast. However, we don't understand why you both proceeded to read out all the dialogues in Australian accents. Wait a uh, second. Wait, we, we can do Australian accents? Uh, apparently, if we try to do I British didn't even ones, know. <laughs> we end up doing Australian ones. So that that's kind of how we, we uh, hook a left when we want to go right. Uh, anyway, anyhow, technically speaking, a Burke is actually the second rudest word in the English language. It's short for Berkeley Hunt, which is Britain's oldest fox hunting pack, which is Cockney rhyming slang for "see you next Tuesday." Mm. It wouldn't surprise me if this were the de- it were this detail that proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back and finally got the comic banned. That's so interesting because that's like the one thing we do. we just kept joking about. We I know, we, and we would have <laughs> never, you know, that whole Cockney rhyming slang is like a. It truly is like another language. It's unbelievable. It's an art, yeah. yeah. Uh, he continues. Uh, Moro continues. Uh, just before its demise, however, the issue you reviewed was spectacularly torn in half on live TV by Frank Bow, a semi-famous newsreader of the era, and denounced as a bad influence on Britain, Britain's youth. Ironically enough, the newsreader in question was fired a few years later after being photographed wearing lingerie and snorting coke in the company of prostitutes at an S&M party. It's always that way, you know. The it's loudest, always that way. The, loudest, the moral crusaders. Exactly. Yeah. There's a reason uh, behind that. Uh, he goes on. Action was already facing the threat of cancellation after a notorious scene in a previous issues episode of Look Out for Lefty in which a football supporter threw a bottle onto the pitch and struck one of the players. To put the incident into context, Britain was a very violent place in the late 1970s, and soccer hooliganism was a highly sensitive problem at the time, particularly amongst youngsters. And I, I have heard such tale, and I read a book about Irish soccer hooligans years ago, mm. and uh, not pretty, not not pretty stuff. I'm tell you, that's no, a, beyond not. beyond a lot of American sports fandom, I would say. I bet. Now, uh, Moro wraps up with, You may or may not know that comics have never been considered as a serious medium in the United Kingdom and have always come under a far far closer scrutiny than film, music, or computer games. As a result, comics have all but disappeared from bookstores over the years, with only The Beano, 2000 AD, and Viz struggling by on a low but loyal readership. The reason can be traced back to Winston Churchill, who tried to get comics banned completely after reading a less-than-complimentary cartoon strip of himself. 
This decision was partly overturned in Parliament a year or two later with the proviso that comics would only be made for and consumed by children. This is something that has always remained within the British psyche, and it explains why, A, adults in the UK have always been embarrassed to admit to reading comics, or indeed dissuaded to do so by society, and B, why comics have always been such an easy go-to when looking for something to blame as a negative influence on the nation's children. Keep up the great work, and all the very best. Morrow. Wow, well, that was a bombshell for us. That's an education, for sure. That really was just an amazing thing, because, of course, we labor under a similar situation in America, which you could say we're sort of coming out of now uh, more recently, but this belief that comics are for children, and that that for us Mm -hmm. that comes out of, obviously, the comics code, but this is a similar, you know, just just essentially a declaration made uh, at one point that just had, you know, echoed out decades uh, afterward. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's true in, in Europe, and we've talked a little bit about, we, we talked about manga, but in doing so, we've talked about how in France and Italy, they have a robust adult comics world. Mm-hmm. Italy has straight up, you know, sexy, a lot of sexy time comics coming out of uh, Italy and Spain, but not the UK, uh, except for Future yeah. Shocks and 2080. But uh, after that, it really is like Dan Dare, and stuff, the you know, Beano and stuff the like dandy, this. Dandy, the Beano. Yeah. So this is uh, this is why this is interesting. This is like why that is that way. And uh, thanks very much for for yes, telling absolutely. us telling us about it because it's just more uh, information for the old brain pan, I guess. Mm-hmm. And we wrap up with uh, our old and great friend. Actually, I don't know if he's that old, but he is a great friend. <laughs> Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, and this is also about episode 137. He writes, Roses are red, violets are blue. I like comics, and so do you, WTF. Uh, I have to disagree with something that you said in episode 137, Street Poet Ray, that poetry might be one of the easier forms of creative writing. Take a look at the above as proof that it is not easy. Now, listen, when I said that, any poetry is easy. Writing good poetry <laughs> is incredibly hard. That's that's the difficult doing, part. Doing good anything. <laughs> in, 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 a, in a broad sense. But, I mean, you know, writing words, you know, to just cascade down in a certain column is not the hard part. But anyway, uh, he wrote, I don't know, uh, whenever I had to write poetry in school, I always struggled. I don't particularly enjoy poetry either, but I do read it sometimes. My dad occasionally will send me something he finds interesting. I also remember a bit of the romantic poet's work because I worked on a project where I shared Iron Maiden's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner with the class and got a decent grade. How about that? Uh, he continues and says, what I, what I really want to say, though, is that the episode was really an excellent episode. You discussed a comic that I had never heard of or have seen, and frankly, if I had, I probably would have passed on and made it, and that made it interesting. The way you read each poem and then discussed the theme as it relates to the real world was very engaging and enjoyable. I was riveted through the episode and was a little disappointed when it was over. And I, that that's like the, the biggest compliment it is, that we really. can get, if you, I think. If you leave you wanting more, that's, uh, that's yeah. a good if thing. If you lose yourself in a show and, and <laughs> you're disappointed when it's over, that's, that's awesome. Uh, he goes on and says, It seemed like you had a lot of fun with the topic, or at least that's how it came through. I also cannot get over the fact that Marvel published something like this in the early 90s. 
I often feel like the Big Two's days of experimentation and risk-taking was over by the late 80s, but I guess I was wrong about that. Yeah, I think there's even periods even, you know, closer to now when they've taken weird... I mean, Marvel is another good good example. Sure, they uh, did that uh, that that love kind of, that 15 love, the tennis romance comic in the, with Andy Watson in the early 2000s. They, they do take risks. There's uh, always little weird risks like that, but this, this really was a product of its time uh, yeah. of, like, that underground comics meets, like, alternative newspaper scene. Uh, so, yeah, I gotta say, Chris, I don't think either of us would ever have read that cover to cover if not having done a show on it. So, oh, yeah, Street Poet Ray is, uh, it's been in my collection for a very long time, and I, I've never read everything in there, it. There's now. pages you never saw until we did the show, so that was, that was a good, uh, Way to, way to make use of that uh, Jeremiah concludes saying I also want to comment that episodes 131 That was Dinosaur's Attack 133 that was the Time Travel Hulk The Indestructible Hulk was the uh, Title of that and Chris's episode on Gone I lo- Am I saying that right Chris or no? I say Gone but Gone, gone is probably gone, yeah, I don't know One uh, G-O-N is what we're getting at He said uh, I love dinosaurs Movies, TV, comics uh, If there's a dinosaur in it I'm interested of the three comics, I'd only read Gone, but I really liked it. He's cute, hungry, and a bit of a jerk, but Masahi Tanaka's storytelling with no dialogue is funny, and the art is great. Richard Delgado's work on Age of Reptiles is similarly engaging, but not the cartoonish way Gone is, but just as readable. The Dinosaur's Attack book is something I'll look for now just because I'd like to see it for myself. Both that and the Hulk episodes were a lot of fun. Anytime you want to do a comic with dinosaurs in it, I'm all in. I guess I've got on for a bit now. I hope Reggie is feeling better. Not really. Take care, and I'll be listening, Jeremiah. So, of mm-hmm. course, he's talking about a Chris Infinite Earths episode. Uh, yes. Which wasn't the most recent one, but it had to be a couple episodes ago. Two or three episodes ago, yeah. Um, I looked at uh, Masashi Tanaka's uh, Gone. It's a, it was a, it's like a very thin Tonkaban. It came out through uh, DC's Paradox Press. Which ah, that was before. the DC connection. I'm wondering, I'm like, where is the DC in there? There it is. <laughs> and, Yes, and the the whole purpose of me ever reviewing that on on the blog was, I was going on vacation, and uh, since as Jeremiah says, there are no words in it. I figured, ah, eh, there's no words. This will be a breeze right. to yeah. synopsize. Nope. Nope. It turned out to be the damn hardest one. <laughs> yep, it was rough. I'll tell but you, it was a great little fun book too. After doing this many episodes, Chris, I got to say the easiest books to synopsize if you want to really rush have got to be like DC Silver Age. I mean, oh, yeah. all the action is stated outright in the ca- in the captions. So you don't, you don't. Yeah, need, they explain everything. Just, yeah. just write, just, just copy the caption, and you pretty much got the whole book. So that's you're done. Yeah, that's how. That's that's my advice to anyone trying to get ahead uh, on their comics <laughs> blog or podcast. Pick a Silver Age DC title, and you will you will have an easier time of it. Uh, but anyway. Uh, that wraps us up for this episode. Of course, again, go back, go listen to those other episodes of J.L. May for the rest of the Blackest Night story, which uh, is one of my favorite stories of recent memory. I, I, I really liked it, and it, it ends in a fairly satisfying way. Uh, a little silly, but that's, you know, comics, of course. comics can be that way. Uh, if you've got some feelings about this issue or uh, anything else we've talked about, about zombies or... Uh, the dead coming back in other fashions. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We have a Patreon account. That's at patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie, where you can donate $5 to get three exclusive shows per month. Plus, you'd be helping out the show to grow. 
Mm-hmm. You can follow us on Instagram at Cosmic T Mill. We're also on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill. And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, you can check out our weekly writings and talkings on recent DC Comics over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And you can check out Chris's daily writings currently about Action Comics Weekly over on Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. He's been going through every issue of Action Comics Weekly, one per week for how many weeks now? Uh, we're up to issue 614, so 14 weeks. So 14 weeks, so you, <laughs> gosh, <laughs> you only have like 40 more to go there. So, uh, we're getting there, we're getting there. We're, we're getting there little by little, but that's an amazing project over there. Every Thursday you can vote on which story was the best of the week. And mm-hmm. uh, tell you there's nothing like it on the internet, chris.infiniteearths.com. Go check it out. And of course, our private, pr- private, our personal site, which is not <laughs> private, it is public to everyone, chrisandreggie.com. That's uh, where you can find all our shows archived in order in an easily searchable manner. If you're looking for a certain topic or date, that is the place, not our Podbean site, to go check it out. Not to mention uh, that is where we expand our show notes a lot of times, add some extra material. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, that's where you'll find the clickable links to the other shows in the JL May uh, event. Absolutely. And while you're over there, you might see a banner for 80stees.com. You can click on that and get yourself a T-shirt. You'll help out uh, the show. You'll help yourself by getting something uh, really cool to wear. And uh, I'm sure 80 Tees won't mind your money. They won't mind either. While you're, while you're clicking, what's one more click, right? What's the Why big not? deal? Uh, but I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? That'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill morbidly. See ya. I returned a bag of groceries accidentally taking off the shelf before the expiration date. I came back as a bag of groceries accidentally taking off the shelf before the day stamped on my sand. Did a large procession wave their torches as my head fell in. Just for when I was eight and I made my younger brother have to be my personal son.